All right, well, welcome to our ongoing uh, session on uh, the scriptures. We're studying the bibliology, right? The, the study of scripture, the Bible. And so last week we kicked that off, and today we're looking at the concept of inspiration. Now, we use that word inspired uh, and inspiration in kind of a range of ways. And so it's good to not be thinking um, about the Bible with thoughts about the other ways we use the word inspired. You know, sometimes we we say... um, uh, I was inspired to do so-and-so. Well, really, it was just I was motivated, right? I was, um, uh, I had the desire or something like that. So it's a pretty pretty tame use of the word. Um, or sometimes we would say, you know, after maybe reading something or, or looking at um, maybe a beautiful painting or something like that, oh, that person was really inspired, you know, um, and that may be a little bit closer, but um, that's not exactly what we're talking about here with Scripture. So let's get a little bit more specific about what we mean when we say uh, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Okay? So I'm on page 23 of the notes. Does everybody have a copy of the notes? Looks like we're covered. Okay. So, uh, under uh, Section C of our first doctrinal category, inspiration. The Bible is verbally inspired. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible does not simply contain the Word of God. It is the inspired Word of God. The Bible does not convey to us simply inspired thoughts, but actual inspired words from the breath of God. Therefore, it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. So, um, when when we say someone has expired, what are we expired? What do we mean? He's died. Why do we use the word expired to say someone has died? Well, the spire part of that is breath. Ex is out, right? Expire means he's breathed his last breath, right? Um, in fact, you know, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, the Gospels tell us that he breathed his last, right, when he died. Uh, that's expired. Well, what's inspired? Well, the word spire has to do with breath. Uh, it also has to do with, uh, it's the same word for uh, breath, wind, and spirit. 
So the spire is about spirit, uh, breath, the breath of God. The, um, so when we say that scripture is God-breathed, um, God, as only God can do, um, breathed into, um, he, by his spirit, he moved, he caused, you know, with lots of words that we try to associate with it, but they all fall short, really, of, of the miracle of what God did to inspire scripture. Um, but that's sort of the root. It's God breathed, meaning it's God breathed into, God caused to happen by <coughs> speaking. Um, so, uh, let's look here. There's a couple of passages that are that are in all uh, in bold. Uh, they're ones that uh, are good ones to memorize if you haven't yet. But let's go to the next to the last one there. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, So how much of the Bible is inspired? All of it, right? And it's inspired by God. It could only be inspired by God. And God inspired it. God caused it. He, he revealed it to have four roles, four purposes. You see what you see them there. Um, and th- you can think of it this way: teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So, uh, teaching is establishing for us what is right. Right, the kind of the standard. What is reproof? Showing us how we've fallen short of that standard, right? What is correction? Showing us how to get back to where we should be, right? What is training in righteousness? Helping us to stay there. Got it? And that kind of covers all of, of God's purposes in giving us scripture. So some of that scripture is very instructional. Some of it is very, um, uh, what, encouraging. Some of it's very convicting. And it has all these roles, right? Let's look at the next passage there, Second Peter 1. Uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, the whole Bible. Yeah, in fact, um, I think we saw... Uh, I don't know if we've got it here this week, but in Second Peter 3... Do we have that? I think we had it last week. Yeah, yeah, at the bottom of page 23, or the top of page 24. Actually, that's not the full... You have to go to the next verse. <laughs> um, but here, 
Um, page 20 has the... Page 20 has it? Yeah, I thought maybe we had it last week. Uh, to do, to do. Yes, at the bottom of page 20. Thank you. It is actually a couple of verses later. So here, Peter, in writing his epistle, is making reference to some of the writings of Paul, and not being very specific about which ones, but there were many. Um, according to the wisdom given to him, that is, through inspiration, wrote to you, as in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures. So what's Peter saying here? They're already recognizing that uh, some of these writings from Paul were a part of scripture. That's part of the New Testament, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just the Old Testament that's included here. Okay. Um, let's go to point number two here on page 23. God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. Both God and man are authors of scripture in a very um, mysterious way. The Holy Spirit so superintended the writing through the individual personalities and different styles of the writing of the human authors that they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. So, um, <clears throat> in almost all of the, the <coughs> sections, categories of doctrines we're going to be looking at, this time we're looking at the scriptures, but in almost all the categories, there's at least one part that is so mysterious, hard to understand, and yet it's very clear from scripture, um, but somewhat of a mystery anyway. And this is a key mystery in the doctrine of of, um, bibliology, that God's word, um, obviously God is ultimately the author, but he chose to reveal his word through the various human prophets and authors and so on, and to retain their their distinct personality, their writing style, their historical context, cultural context. Um, It's not their word, it's God's word. They're his instruments to do it, but they're not just, God wasn't dictating. Now, some things, he says, say this, and, and, and tell people this and whatever, but a lot of it is is not that. It's more, um, you know, l- look at the Psalms, for example, just the prayers and, and, and so on to God and the various instructions we see in, in um, um, the New Testament epistles, for example, the history and how it's described and so on. Even the four Gospels, four people speaking of the same thing, basically, but from slightly different perspectives and, and so on. Um, 
in a way that only God could do. It's his word that's coming through the personalities and styles and perspectives and whatever of the human authors. Um, And so look, for example, down toward the bottom here of page 23, Hebrews 1.1. Book of Hebrews starts by saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, so it wasn't just one way, but it was God speaking through the prophets. And, of course, the author of Hebrews expands on a lot of the implications of that. Um, so, um, any any thoughts about that? That is something. It's hard to get our minds around that. Um, the other thing that's key here is that what God inspired is not just the thoughts, but God inspired the actual words. Well, if God inspired the words, aren't they actually his words that he dictated? No. They, the human authors, um, were inspired by God to write what they did, but it didn't disregard their, their own writing styles, their historical context, their, their, um, their needs, and, and, and so on. Um, but God inspired the actual words. What are some implications of that in terms of our application? If God inspired the actual words, what should that mean for us? So, for example, yeah, what it says, we take, take as literal, right? It's, it's history in that case. Yeah, I was just going to say the fact that he used the individual author's personalities and styles uh, does also emphasize the fact that God did not make us all to be identical. He made us to be different. He made us to be unique and varied, um, and that's part of his creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just like those human authors of Scripture, uh, we're not just puppets. Right? Even though God is sovereign, he's in control. Um, but getting back to the inspiring the actual words, not just the thoughts. So, yeah, it should um, lead us to honor and obey God's word, for sure. Um, let me... Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it means if we think like they're the inspired words... Um, but we're now like reading translations like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'm just actually looking here. Let's keep that in the back of our mind and get to it as we progress here in a few sections, okay? Because that is definitely one of the implications. Okay. Um, and I think it's mostly going to come up in the inerrancy section. That's why I was looking. But let's go to number three here and keep that question in the back of our mind. On page 24, the Bible does not become the word of God as it is understood and accepted by man. Rather, it is the word of God, whether or not man understands it and accepts it. So, um, what are some implications of that? So, the role of scripture is to 
um, you think of it in sort of a, a general sense, Scripture's in judgment of us, we're not in judgment of Scripture. Right? So, uh, look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the third verse down there. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So there are several interesting truths there, but the one we're talking about here is that um, it, it is God's word. It's not the words of men, right? Um, the other thing that stands out here is its role. So the actual word of God, God uses to transform people, right? I mean, literally, he's done that for all of us, right? He's opened our eyes to his truth and drawn us to himself, and he uses his word to do that. Um, he performs its work. And that work, we looked at from from Second Timothy, is to um, uh, instruct us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. And that's a work of God that he uses his word and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to to uh, make happen. Okay, let's move to inerrancy. You know what being errant means, right? To be in error. Inerrant is is the the uh, the negative in front of it. It's not in error. Is what inerrant means, right? Um, like inescapable means not escapable, right? Inerrant means not errant, not in error. The, the Bible is absolutely inerrant in the original documents. It is true without any mixture of error in whole or in part. So... Uh, you're familiar with um, these verses like Matthew 5 where Jesus said not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished so God is sovereign over uh, the the, uh, the the permanence of his word and that its purposes will be fulfilled and likewise in John 10 um, Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken in other words what God has said is true uh, what God has said will happen will happen what God has promised will come to pass um, John 17 in Christ's high priestly prayer as it's called right before his his um, crucifixion he's praying for us he's praying for his immediate disciples and for all who come to him through their ministry he says sanctify them in the truth your word is truth um, and so Jesus understood 
that God's word was what is true. He also said earlier that evening, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so there's a very strong connection, of course, between the word of God, we saw this last week, the word of God written and the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. Um, Okay, so it says the Bible is absolutely inerrant in the original documents. So now we're getting back to to that that question. Um, why do we say that it's absolutely inerrant in the original documents? Do we have the original documents? No. Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament. Although we've got we've got uh, lots of manuscripts particularly the New Testament, that are closer to the time when they were actually written. Um, and I think I mentioned, was it last week, about the Dead Sea Scrolls, how, how discovering them showed that the transmission over time, over like a thousand years, uh, there's like no substantive difference at all over a thousand years from handwritten manuscripts. There maybe were a few typos and a few spelling things. It was obvious what, what was the original. Um, but nothing of any content or meaning or doctrine was changed over a thousand years of handwriting. Can you imagine doing that? I'd make errors on the very first one. Um, plus, you couldn't read my writing. But um, why was that true? Well, it was partly true because the Jews, particularly when they were making copies, the scribes were making copies of the Old Testament manuscripts, um, were very devout, very um, serious about getting it right. They understood the stakes. But it wasn't just because of that. What else was involved here? God was involved sovereignly of protecting the transmission of that text over time, particularly since the documents, the, the manuscripts, the, the paper, the parchment, whatever, was um, not long-lasting. Well, it was actually long-lasting, probably longer-lasting than the paper we have today uh, because they knew that was an issue. and They didn't want things, so they, over the years, developed some technologies to have uh, what we would call paper in a form that would last, but it wasn't eternal lasting. It wasn't long lasting. None of it exists today from those original writings. Um, they didn't have photocopiers. They didn't have computers. And, but you remember back on uh, something we covered last week. Page 18. We have that chain of events. So God wants to reveal certain things um, as part of his growing um, compendium of, his, of Scripture, of his word. And so it starts with God's will, God's desire to reveal. And through revealing it and inspiring the, um, the human authors to write what he wanted um, and by working through 
his people to recognize the difference between what God had inspired versus hadn't. That's canonicity. We covered that last week. But then this transmission over time, copies after copies, um, that's not just a human effort. That was also a God-superintended effort in his sovereignty to make sure that his word was getting out. He, like in, in many of these steps, he's sort of partnering and working through human agency, but ultimately who's in charge here? God is. And that's true not just of the revelation and inspiration, but also the canonicity, the transmission, the tr- and the translation. So, um, and then ultimately the, um, we didn't talk about this so much, the illumination, that's when we finally see it in front of us, God's, the Holy Spirit, he wrote it, he gives us the ability to comprehend. It might not be a, a complete comprehension immediately, um, but you've probably known that prior to coming to Christ, um, the Bible was kind of a mystery and you weren't really able to understand it all that much, but uh, once he, the Holy Spirit particularly, takes residence in us as believers, uh, he indwells every believer, he also gives us... Um, a growing ability to understand what he's communicating in scripture. That's illumination. He turns on the light. Bing! It's not a mystical thing, but you, we, we have that image, right? Where a, a light bulb goes off. Oh, now I understand. Now I see because now there's light shed on what it means. Well, in that sense, it's called illumination. Um, uh, and that helps us in our interpretation because we get to see what oh I see what he's saying here and I, I'm, I'm, I'm comparing this with this other passage and and we can come up with a an interpretation uh, the interpretation that God had in mind as we apply ourselves and submit to his uh, spirit and then of course the whole point of this is application to our lives and he's He's equally sovereign in all those things. So uh, nudging people, uh, turning on the, the lights so that people see and understand. Um, um, he didn't just dictate it and then hope for the best. That's the point we're making, right? God was sovereign over that whole process. Now, the question, the, the logical question then about... Uh, uh, translation is well why are there so many different translations if God is superintending the translation of his word um, okay so think about it um, and this gets back to my earlier question about what are the implications of the fact that God has inspired the words, not just the thoughts. So the, the first thing, the first kind of application of that is that whenever we, whenever anyone tries to translate the scriptures, 
um, they should be working from the original languages, the original you know, copies of the original manuscripts, essentially, right? So the Hebrew and the Greek, there's a little bit of Aramaic in there in the Old Testament. Um, uh, why would they? Why would it be best to work from the original languages? Every time you go through it and someone translates it, and then you look at that, um, they may have missed something in the original context of the word uh, to make it so that we you could understand it, and then you, so you're just retranslating another uh, thought. So it's kind of like whispering down the alley, in some sense. Yeah. You can study the, the, the language from one perspective, and you can interpret it one way because you understand the fullness of, of that phrase, and you can be like, well, based on the experience, this is how I should translate it. Whereas someone else with a completely different style of translation will come by and be like, well, I know that that's your interpretive meaning, but I'm going to break down my literally, you know, and then go from there. So there's a lot of... And then there's also the fact that just given the fact that this is happening over millennia, uh, you can have you know completely unchanging translation, but a word could change very drastically, even just in a hundred years. And how it's so used? Need, yeah, so you still need to change that word, even right. if you know it's still a word. But. So word usage changes over time, which is why there have been a, a sequence of translations, even in English, over time. You know, the King James translation was actually very good. If you spoke that way, right? We don't speak that way anymore, and so it carries most of the same meaning, but we use some of those words in different ways now, or we don't use some of them at all, and so it's not as, it it doesn't register with us quite as strongly as a more modern translation, but those modern translations need to be translations not of the King James, but of what? The original languages. Um... So, yes, a, a good example of that. Um, well, there are two, two interesting things that I think you're saying. One is that, um, and I may get back to what Lauren was saying, that a translator can have a certain agenda. Agenda meaning an ulterior purpose to try to communicate even in, in, in the case of scripture, they could try to communicate a, a favored doctrine, let's say. And it comes through in the way the translation is made, but that might not actually be what the original language was getting at. So that's, that's a temptation, it's, it's potentially a danger, right? Um, Another difference is that someone could be, one, one translation approach would be to start with um, the original language, the original manuscripts or copies of the originals, um, and, and the, the earliest manuscripts. Why the earliest? Because they're closest to the original. There's less time for other errors and stuff to creep in, Right. One of the advantages of more modern um, translations that are faithful to the original over, say, the King James is not just the modern language, but the, at the time the King James was translated, not all of those early manuscripts were yet discovered. 
And so later discoveries of earlier and earlier manuscripts have caused um, not a lot, but a few places where there's a, a, um, a, a closer translation to the original because it was closer in time to the original. But so one, one approach would be to, to look at the words. You know, if I were to translate something, I would you know, get out a dictionary or something, and I would just kind of go word for word and translate every word. What's, what's the problem with that? You're used to, many of you are used to different languages, right? <laughs> and you realize there's not a one to one correspondence of those words. Right. Yeah. So that's 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 a challenge for anybody who wants to be faithful in translating scriptures. Um, that while we need to understand the words themselves as being inspired, not just general thought. Now there are some quote-unquote translations, even modern ones, that have the approach of translating the thoughts. And they may have some value in terms of, um, you know, the flow and the style can be more what we're used to and whatever, but um, there's a heavy emphasis of interpretation there rather than just translation. And you've got to be careful with those. Uh, because God has inspired the words, not just the thoughts. Um, so another approach to translation, uh, two of them that we've talked about that are kind of a challenge. One is this word-for-word translation, one-to-one correspondence. The other is having entering the, the translation process with an agenda, a... a um, um, and an outcome in mind and, and basically changing the meaning often to suit your and a lot of cults do this yeah a lot of cults do that because they, they have a doctrine and they want to kind of twist the words um, and that Satan's famous for that you know, ever since the beginning he's been twisting the word of God uh, so we need to be careful there um, however you know I mentioned earlier We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And they're all giving us a short biography, essentially, of Jesus. And there's some overlap between them. And even when there is overlap between them, we often get different words, different perspectives, different... um, uh, fullness, and it's kind of like uh, you know you you have uh, in this case let's say four people who were witnesses to a certain event, maybe an accident or something, and investigators come along later to try to get the story of what actually happened. Do you think those four accounts are going to be identical? No. Does that mean anybody's lying? No, not necessarily. They, they just had, they saw different things at different times, they're at different angles or whatever it is. Um, now, um, scholars have seen, and you've probably noticed when you're reading the four Gospels, that they, 
they do tend to have a different purpose in writing, and a different audience sometimes. And so what they're sharing is because of their purpose in writing, what they're trying to communicate, uh, who they're communicating to. And so you would expect some, some differences. Uh, but it's all God's word, and God's inspiring the actual words themselves. Well, the same is true even among translations that are seeking to be faithful to the originals and faithful to the words and not just the thoughts. And so a couple of good examples today would be um, uh, the New American Standard translation and the English Standard, ESV, English Standard Version. Both of them had the identical purpose in, in the translation to base it on the earliest manuscripts, use the actual words and the languages of the, the original, and to convey it in a way that people today can understand it in English, um, that also um, sensitive to uh, the fact that you can't, you want it to be literal translation, but you, you don't want it to be a word for word because no two languages have that one-to-one -one correspondence. And so you have to take into account idioms and culture. And, and, and even in the English language, there are multiple ways to say pretty much the same thing. So um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Sorry? It's a good. It's a good. Why is it good? I think it's a complementary vision. Yeah. So you can add more into the text and into the meaning because you have different perspectives. And if they are accurate with the original, you can have a different complementary vision that helps you to enrich the understanding. And so in our own Bible study, how can we take advantage of that? I like to say different versions. I like also to go to the strong and go to the word mm -hmm. and look for the word yep. the original and then pick up the meaning. And, yep. and that helped me. It's the same when you study different commentary because everyone is good and everyone gives you a different from, vision from yeah. the verse. And as long as they're all working from the same um, approach, and those are probably the two most common translations in English today that have followed that approach. Um, New King James is actually pretty good, too, um, but it wasn't exactly a fresh start, I don't think, quite the way the other two were. Um, so the bottom line is God is sovereign even over that. Now, of course, there are bad translations. And so he needs to, and he does, give us discernment to understand what we're dealing with here. And um, I meant to mention earlier about the, the, the dangers of making a translation from a translation. The most famous one of those, do you know what the most famous one of those was? Or is? 
No, the, the version. What version? In the, the King James, because wasn't it translated from the Latin Vulgate and that was from the Septuagint? No, no not the, the King James was was translated from the originals. No, no, he translated from the originals too. But into German, that doesn't help me. <laughs> um, no, the Vulgate itself, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the Pope at the time, I don't know who it was, asked uh, Jerome, was it Jerome? I think so. I think so. Right. To translate, he was a scholar, but he translated, uh, hang on here. I need to, I need to review that. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm mixing up. Let me research that again and get back to you. That, that's an important thing. I don't want to mislead you. Um, but something I do know is that practices and doctrines in, as they kind of developed in the Roman Catholic Church were based largely on that Latin Vulgate. By the way, you know what Vulgate means? Yeah, vernacular. It's, it means... Uh, the idea was to translate the scriptures into the common language, the vulgar language, the common uh, vernacular. And isn't it ironic that in, during the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church didn't want the word of God in the common man's language and killed a lot of the people who tried to do it, uh, including Tyndale. Um, anyway, that was the that was the point. Latin, so it was all in Latin. The original were, was in Hebrew and Greek, and and uh, the Vulgate put it all in Latin, which at the time was the most widespread language, I suppose. So it, it made sense to do it. Um, but then other translations were made from the Vulgate, and a, a good example of that is um, Wycliffe translating into English. He definitely used the Vulgate for that. But I don't think he was the first. Uh, but he, he translated into English, or at least the English they spoke at those days. Okay. Um, so, I don't know if I've answered your question, Tirza. Uh, yeah. the, the bottom line is that God's superintending all of that. Now, we have a role. People have a role. They have a responsibility in that role. But ultimately, God is superintending that. Yeah, I guess I just didn't know for like application state, like sometimes people can get caught up on the specific words of one specific translation. Yes. And so how do we balance like thinking that the words are inspired, but also realizing that we have different translations that come at the right. original in different ways. Yeah. Right, right. So that actually brings me to the other part of that question I asked earlier. What are some implications for us or really for anyone from the fact that God has inspired the actual words, not just the thoughts. And so one of the applications, we've kind of talked about it, is when we study the Bible, when anybody studies the Bible, um, we need to be cognizant of the original words. <coughs> so typically, in, as we read our English translation, uh, we can tell in, in a lot of verses, oh, that's a key word in this passage. And fortunately, 
Uh, for us who don't know the Hebrew and the Greek, it's all Greek to me, um, there are tools out there. You, know, you mentioned you know, Strong's and, and so on, but there are um, lexicons and, and um, uh, tools that say even in this passage, here's the, the use of this word and this is why it's translated in, in various ways. And even those of us who, I mean, the tools are out there and um, uh, they're not all that expensive. Some of them are free. They've been around forever. Um, to allow us to dig deeper into the actual words. Those original languages are important. So a- another another upshot of that is if you're going to invest yourself um, by God's leading to exposit his word from the pulpit every week, you think it's a good thing to know those original languages so that you can come up with those... those um, insights directly and when you read someone else's thoughts about those insights you can weigh this person's um, view of it versus that person's view of it because you also understand those languages Um, it's it's, um, incumbent on us in our interpretation to take into account these multiple translations and to have discernment, and who gives us that discernment? Ultimately, it's God. Right? We can be as prepared as possible, we can use tools and so on, but ultimately, it's all part of what God is doing. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, bottom of page 24, number two. The Bible is completely true in all it asserts including matters of doctrine, Christian living, ministry, history, geography, and science. So the Bible is not a textbook of all those things, but when it speaks to them, it speaks truth. Right? And so, for example, here in Matthew 19, uh, these verses that you have here are are, um, taken from the numerics, New American Standard translation. Uh, And their style is that whenever a verse in the New Testament is a direct quote of a portion of the Old Testament, it puts it in all all caps. Okay? So here's Jesus in Matthew 19 quoting uh, Genesis. I mean, right down to the beginning. And he said, Have you not read, that is in Scripture, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis here. Genesis 3. Point out, um, like to anybody who tries to say that translation can't be inspired, Jesus is the living word of God and he's not, right here where he's quoting it, he's not going back to the original Hebrew that it was written in. He's quoting the Septuagint that they understand and they know. So he's quoting a translation of the original, but because it's the living word of God, we're getting confirmation. This is still the inspired word of God. So yeah, he may have actually been speaking in Aramaic. Also possible. Yeah, but um, he's he's um, speaking of this as history, as accurate, uh, a direct quote from 
first of all, Genesis 1 and then Genesis 3. Um, but look at, on top of page 25, Romans 3. Paul says, uh, May it never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou might be justified in thy words and might prevail when you are judged. Um, that's one of the other idiosyncrasies of the New American Standard. It uses that that thee and thou and, and Midas thing when it's specifically talking to God. Because in English we don't have a separate kind of language for the talking directly to God. And the irony, of course, is that, that language is sort of borrowed from the King James, which was also in the vulgar, in the, in the common language of the people at the time, even though it no longer is. Anyway, um, what's the point there? Paul is also quoting the Old Testament as foundational, as true, and um, that ultimately what he's saying is, is that God, through Scripture, is in, in judgment over us. We are not in judgment over God or Scripture. Okay, and then number three on page 25. The inerrancy of the original documents of Scripture, written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, is not an irrelevant doc, uh, doctrine, but ensures the accuracy of all careful copies and translations of the Bible from the originals. So that's what we've been talking about. That God's in charge of that, both the uh, transmission and the translation uh, among those who are dedicated to God. And it continues on, even in the, tr in the interpretation. Uh, we're dependent on his uh, ability. He's giving us the ability to do that. And so, look at the middle verse there, for example, Matthew 26. Jesus said, you have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So, uh, Jesus is speaking of himself as was prophesied in, um, I believe it's from the book of Daniel, when he's being tried. And... What's his point? Those prophecies, they're going to happen. That scripture is true, it's going to happen. And as it turns out, he's, he says, he's talking about me. <laughs> um, and he understood that his listeners, the, the ruling council in Jerusalem, would have... Um, superficially at least, believed that those writings were true, that they're inspired by God. Uh, what they didn't believe was that they referred to Jesus. Um, okay. Any questions so far? Yeah. So, for example, um, if you start from the presumption that the universe is billions of years old, the earth is billions of years old, and humans have evolved from basically nothing because of a cosmic accident. 
and you try to interpret the world through those lenses. And then you come to Genesis 1, you say, that can't be true. So what are we doing? Man is standing in judgment of God rather than the other way around. Right? Uh, or you get people who try to have it both ways. Where Genesis 1 speaks of um, six days of creation. They say, oh, those days must have been a long, long period of time. Well, um, that just doesn't stand a whole water. Uh, if it was a long, long, long time, you've got all those fossils, things dying, then death was not a consequence of sin. But in fact, death was a consequence of sin. Scripture is clear on that. And the way the seven, the six days, ultimately the seventh day, but six days of creation are given to us in Genesis 1 <clears throat> are very much about 24-hour days. Morning and evening, the first day. Morning and evening, the second day. And every time there's a numbering of days in the Old Testament, it's always literal days. And you get to Exodus 20. You know what's in Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. It says, you should keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. Why? It goes back to Genesis. Because God created everything in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So if those days are indefinite, long periods of time, what is the Ten Commandments saying? That you should work for six long, indeterminate periods of time, and then the seventh long, indeterminate, millions of years kind of time, you're supposed to have a Sabbath? No, it's obvious that they're talking about literal 24-hour days. Um, there's a very easy, very common mistake that all of us could be subject to if we're not careful. And that is, we try to interpret the scriptures having made certain assumptions about what are true and then holding scripture to account to those things that we've assumed to be true. Rather than understanding the truth and evaluating all of our assumptions in light of the truth. We often get it backwards. We might not often get it backwards, but it's a very easy temptation for all of us to go into a passage with a certain frame of mind and assume that our assumptions are facts, when in fact they're only assumptions, and therefore interpret something to be consistent with what we think is true, when in fact that's not what scripture is saying, and therefore we should reevaluate what we thought was true. We're not immune from that. We need to be careful. I was just going to, uh, like, for a specific example of that, going back to what you were saying, um, if you look at the fossil record, there are, like, explosions of different types of life showing up, and people and people try to unite secular science and the Bible, say that, oh, well, you know, Genesis is talking about long epochs, and that, and these are just millions of years apart, when it's much, much simpler to explain by modern scientific methodology is just flawed, 
what we think were millions of years apart really were just days. And uh, it just goes back to a, a stance of interpreting scripture by creation rather than creation by scripture, like right. you were saying. Right. Yeah, and there are lots of examples of that. But it's, it's, it's what, I'm, what I'm really trying to say is it's easy to point our fingers at people who approach that wrong, but it's, it's hard to recognize when we're actually doing the same thing, when it really comes down to it. So we need to be careful to let Scripture speak for itself and let it, let it interpret our assumptions. If our assumptions are consistent with Scripture, they're helpful. If our assumptions are inconsistent with Scripture, they're misleading, right? And we can need to adjust them. Yeah, the Big Bang. I, I hear the Big Bang has now gone kaput in terms of people's... What's interesting, too, while we're at it, is um, when it really comes down to it, it takes more faith to believe in some of the nonsense people dream up than it does to believe in the miraculous by an all-powerful God. Scientists out there who yeah. think aliens putting life on Earth is more reasonable than yeah. an intelligent designer. Like. Yeah. Yeah, so they've actually departed from the scientific method. Okay, well, I've included here for your reference um, uh, a little bit of supplemental notes that might be helpful to you. Um, on the middle of page 26, I did want to highlight one thing particularly. We've talked about some of the problems of these other approaches and views of interpretation, but I just want to be clear about the way we speak of inspiration of Scripture. We refer to verbal, plenary, organic, infallible. So verbal means God's inspiring the words, not just the thoughts. Plenary. You might not have thought of plenary in this context. When you think of plenary, what do you think of? A plenary session in a conference, maybe, where it includes everybody, right, rather than maybe some breakout meetings. Plenary means all, essentially. And so all the Bible was inspired, not just parts. Organic. The Holy Spirit used the background and personalities of the writers. We talked about that. And infallible or inerrant. We talked about that. So it's verbal, plenary, organic, infallible, that's the character of God's inspiration of scripture. Okay. Um, I think the rest of it is useful reading. Um, We've about run out of time, but I think we've talked on page 32, the application question, what impact should the doctrine of verbal inspiration, the fact that the original words themselves, not just the thoughts, were inspired, what impact should that have on your study of Scripture? You need to study the original words in their historical, literary context. Um, the words are important and how those words would have been understood by their original hearers or readers is important. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray.